This is Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. This is God's word for us tonight. It's completely true, and he gives it to us in love. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and of shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight we're going to talk about the devil um, and Satan. And uh, I know this is, uh, we don't like talking about this stuff, right? Like this is, this is not a topic that we regularly engage in in any sort of meaningful way in the West. If we were in Asia or Africa or Latin America, those are areas of the world where, where people, like spiritual warfare is something that people acknowledge and um, it helps them to make sense of reality that there is spiritual good that was waging war against spiritual evil. Like this is part of how they make sense of reality. It's not strange to them. It's not unusual to them. Um, many, but, but here in the West, right, we find this to be a foreign concept. Like spiritual evil warfare, the idea that there is a devil. Like at best we have, um, we have caricatures of this in our mind. Um, it's this foreign concept for us. But in verse 12 here, Paul says that we struggle against the spiritual forces of evil. So what I want us to do tonight um, is we're going to talk about this. So uh, who do we fight? This is the outline on here. Who do we fight? What do we fight? And how do we fight? And uh, tonight I'm relying heavily on uh, some of uh, Pastor Tim Keller's uh, teaching on this subject. Because as I was studying, I found that what he had to say about this was so helpful that I wanted to share a lot of it with you guys. So first, who do we fight? Um, Verse 12, he says, we struggle against the spiritual forces of evil. There's a scholar at Columbia named Andrew Del Banco, and he wrote a book in 1995 called The Death of Satan. And so he starts his book, he says, I am a secular liberal. So he starts with that, saying he's a secular liberal. But in the first line of the book, this is what he says. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. He goes on to say, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil when we're making, when we're making sense of reality. We don't, that word is uncomfortable for us. And the reason that we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So instead, we use medical terms. We call things dysfunctions and pathologies rather than use the moral terminology, good and evil. And Del Banco writes that as the 20th century went on, it became harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansings and serial killing was just bad psychology and and bad sociological adjustment. And the result is that we do not have the intellectual resources to cope with real evil. Has anyone in here seen the movie The Silence of the Lambs? Um, are familiar, you're familiar with the story. So Del Banco um, 
actually talks about this one scene in the movie in his book. And uh, the, the movie has two central characters. There's Hannibal Lecter, who is a serial killer and cannibal. And then there is a young policewoman named um, Officer Starling. And she's the one who's working his case. And so Del Banco in his book references this scene when Officer Starling goes in to meet Hannibal Lecter for the first time. And she goes to visit his cell. And she's looking at him through the glass, and she's hearing about what he's done, the horrific things that he's done. And this is what she says. She says, what's happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? And Lecter hears her, and he begins to speak. And this is what he says. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You cannot reduce me to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. No one, nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And Del Banco, who's quoting this, says that modern people, people in the modern West, cannot answer the monster's question. Can you say that I'm evil? And he's right. We can't say this. We can't answer this. I mean, like, even just watching the way that we cope with, with horrific things we see, like the way that, as a culture, we're responding to um, what happened in New Zealand, this, this horrible film massacre in New Zealand on Friday, um, grappling with the evil, we lack the language, the moral language as a culture to deal with this. And he says that we don't know, Del Banco says in the West, we don't know how to make sense of the depth and the pervasiveness of evil. But the Bible doesn't have this problem. Because the Bible says that, that evil has a source. Evil came from the free will of two races of beings that God created. Angels and humans. So some of the angels fell from heaven by exercising their free will and turning away from God. And these fallen angels, the Bible calls the devil and his demons. And these are personal, supernatural beings. And then on the other hand, we have the human race. And we turned. And we have evil in our hearts, deep in our soul. And therefore, this is what Christianity says. It says that, that psychological and sociological factors don't create evil. Yes, psychological and sociological factors can aggravate and they can shape our self-centeredness, our self-absorption, our blindness, our self-delusion. But the evil is in our hearts, all of us. And aggravated by the devil, it makes the world the way it is. There, are de- there is a devil and there are demons, and you need to hear that. And I'm sure some of you have real trouble with that idea. Like, just hearing me say that is difficult. Um, believing that there's a personal devil. So I just want to suggest four things to you. This is from Tim Keller. Um, he says this. First, if you struggle with believing about the devil, please consider that perhaps you're being simplistic. Right? Wake students, you all want to be sophisticated and nuanced, not crude or unsophisticated. Is it possible that perhaps by not realizing the multidimensionality and the spiritual dimension to human evil, is it possible that you are being simplistic and you are being naive? That it's not the people who believe in the devil and the demon who are naive, but it's actually you. Second, if you struggle with believing in a personal devil, you might actually be culturally narrow. While Western people have a lot, or white Western people have a lot of trouble believing in the devil. But that's not true of most people in the world. In Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, um, lots of places they have no trouble believing in spirits and demons and things like that. And they have wisdom too, right? So... um, are you really going to look down at all of those cultures that tell what they tell you about this? To paraphrase Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. 
And third, if you struggle with believing in a personal devil, ask you this, do you believe in God? If you say, oh yeah, of course I believe in God, then isn't it a little inconsistent if you believe in good personal supernatural beings and not in evil personal supernatural beings? Do Do you see the inconsistency there? And fourth, if the Bible is true, if the Bible is right about this, and it is, um, you will not be able to understand, let alone defeat on your own, the darkness in your own heart, the darkness in your family, on campus, in the world, that it's beyond you. We are in over our heads if we are alone in this. It takes more than psychology and sociology. So that is who we fight. So second, what do we fight? In verse 11, Paul says that we fight the schemes of the devil. And this word schemes is a word that means strategies. Um, let, addressing a, another church in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that, he says, do not be unaware of the devil's devices. So what are the devil's devices? What are his schemes? Um, well, I just want to name two errors and two strategies that we must fight. So the first, the errors that we fall into. And our, the errors we fall into is either overestimating or underestimating our enemy. So first, the, the Bible doesn't want us to underestimate the spiritual forces of evil. Um, He says in verse 12 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. When I hear the word wrestle, I immediately think of me wrestling with my kids. And um, like that image, right, is a dad with his kids is like, I'm like gentle but strong and it's playful and it's safe. And that's not what this word means. Um, The word that Paul is using for wrestle is a war word. Like he's, he's choosing this word, it's a battle word. He's saying it's not that we fight with arrows from afar or even with swords um, out of arm's reach, but that it's, this is hand-to-hand combat. This is when, like thinking in, in battle scenes and movies, when, like, when they've gotten close and the swords are down and they're on the ground wrestling. Like it's that intense. That's the word that Paul uses. Um, and look at the words he uses to describe evil. He says rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil. And Paul is showing us just how intimidating they are. And he's layering these heavy, imposing words. And he's saying to us, don't underestimate your enemy. But he's also saying, don't overestimate him. Verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord. He says, don't be afraid. Don't don't run away. In the end, he says, when the evil day comes, when you've put on the full armor of God, God, he says, to stand. Not might stand. Like, not that maybe that will happen. But you will stand. You should expect success. Like in the spiritual battle, as a Christian, you should expect success. C.S. Lewis, um, who was an author in the 20th century, wrote this great book called Screwtape Letters. And what it is, is it's, it's a um, fictional account of an uncle demon writing advice to his nephew demon, who's like learning how to be a demon. And it's like this letter, it's, this, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Um, and so uncle... Uncle uh, Screwtape is giving nephew Wormwood advice on how to scheme, how to strategize. And in the introduction to this book, Lewis names um, that there are two errors you can fall into with the demonic. And the the errors, he says, are the ones that Paul addresses here. Um, On on the one hand, you can overestimate their strength. Um, Lewis says that you can have an unhealthy interest in the evil spiritual forces. Or you can ascribe all evil or too much power to them. This is people who blame everything on the devil. Like anger, wrath, all of it is the devil's fault. Like everything bad is the devil's fault. Um, and he says, on the other hand, you can disbelieve. You cannot believe in them at all. Credit the, credit the, the evil spiritual forces with nothing. So there's superstition, which is overbelief, and then substition or underbelief. And this is what Lewis writes. He says, the, de- the devils are equally pleased with both errors. 
and they will hail a materialist, someone who underbelieves, or a magician, someone who overbelieves. They will hail them, they'll welcome them with the same delight. So why are both of these bad? Well, they're bad because they reduce evil. And the key to fighting evil successfully is having a nuanced and complexified understanding of it. See, if you say that, if you say that everything is the devil or nothing is the devil, then you reduce things to the simplistic understanding of why things go wrong. So that's understanding the errors. And second, the strategies. So what are, what are these strategies? What are the, um, the other translations say the wiles of the devil? What are the schemes of the devil? Well, the word devil is, is the, the Greek word here we have translated is this word um, diablos, or where we get the word diabolical. And it's a noun form of the verb that means to lie or to slander. And this is how he works. He tells lies. And there's two types of lies that he tells us. Um, there's, there's two types of lies that he tells us. Um, here's the thing. In the West, we, we don't think the devil's ever involved unless, like, right, we've got the image, like the... Like someone is, someone's head is spinning around and they're turning green and vomiting, right? That's where like now the devil's in it. Like we know that's when he's around. But um, the main way that he works is that he is a liar. The word devil means liar. Um, There's a guy named John White who's a Christian counselor. And this is the illustration he uses to talk about how the devil works. He says, if you take a piano um, and you open the top and you sing into it, whatever, whatever note your voice is attuned to, whatever string your, note, your voice is attuned to. Most of us don't have p- perfect pitch, so we actually don't know what, which, what note we're singing. But um, you sing into it, um, uh, you can find out. You can find out what pitch you're singing. If you, if you open the top of the piano and you sing into it, the, the note that you're singing will vibrate. That string will vibrate. Um, you haven't even touched it, but it will vibrate to your voice. Um, and that's what the devil does. He hums into our hearts. Right? He doesn't make good people bad but he makes flawed people worse. He, he plays on what's already inside of us. He opens the top and he sings into our hearts. He stirs it up. He hums into our hearts. He aggravates what's already in you. He lies about what's already in you. And this is the reason why earlier when we read Ephesians 4, when Paul says to not let the sun go down on your anger and says don't give the devil that, that type of foothold, it's because anger, like if the devil singing, humming into anger, turns anger into bitterness. Right? And, and bitterness poisons us. That he takes what's already there and he amplifies it. So here are the two ways that he lies. The things he says to us. Now, he doesn't literally speak to us. Um, but he, he like works with the, the self-talk. You know, the stuff that we get stuck in our head. The things that we say to ourselves. That's what he works with. And he vibrates our heartstrings. So how does, he, how does he lie to us? Well, two basic categories. Two basic ways he does this in the Bible are temptation and accusation. So temptation, um, he gets you to have too high of a view of yourself so that you go and do things that you shouldn't. He gets you to have too high of a view of yourself so you go and do things you shouldn't. And the second is accusation. He gets you to have too low and a self-hating view of yourself. He accuses you so that you go and do things that you shouldn't. And he does both ways. So what is he doing? So in temptation, Satan is hiding God's holiness from you. He's hiding how much God hates sin. And he's playing up God's love. And with accusation, he's doing the opposite. He's hiding God's love from you, and he's playing up. Um, he's, hiding, he's hiding the riches of God's grace from you, and he's, he's playing up God's holy, holiness and God's wrath on sin. So how does this work exactly? Um, well, temptation and accusation are the lies which Satan uses to move us to do things that are wrong. If you have a too high view of yourself or too low a view of yourself, 
He lies to you and he tells you, um, he tells you that God is love without holiness or he lies to you telling you that God is holiness without love. There was a 17th century pastor, a great pastor named Thomas Brooks, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Sounds like a 17th century book. Um, And in this book, he categorizes 70 devices that Satan uses against us. Um, It's a fascinating book. You can get a free e-book. I highly recommend it. It's um, 70, it's, it's, it's long. It's fascinating. So Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Um, and I've, I've pulled a few out that I want to share with you what he talks about. So what he does is he gives the device and then he gives the remedy for it. So how does Satan tempt us? Here are five ways that, that Brooks talks about it. One of the things he does is he shows you the bait and he hides the hook. So Satan gets you to look at short-term pleasures and he hides from you the long-term miseries. Right? This is the voice. Just do it. It'll feel good. You won't regret it this time. Um, second, he gets you to rationalize sin as virtue. This is when we say things like, well, I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty. Or I'm not nosy, I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic, I just enjoy a good party. I'm not filled with lust, I just appreciate beauty. Third, um, he tempts us by overstressing the mercy of God. So this is when we say to ourselves, just go ahead and do it. God will forgive you, that's his job. Um, Fourth, he shows Christians how many bad people seem to have great lives. Right? I might as well do the thing... Um, because playing by the rules doesn't seem to be paying off. Like, look at them over there. Their lives are great, and they're not playing by the rules. Uh, And fifth, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. So, like, my life is good over here, so I'm allowed to do this over here. And the extreme version of this is mafia hitmen. Like, their line of thought is, I'm good to my mother so I can kill people. Like, that's how they they actually work. Um, so that's temptation. Now accusation. Here's four, four of his devices for accusation. Um, one is that he causes us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. This is like when we beat ourselves up for how bad we are. And the remedy that he gives is that for every one look at your sin, you need to take five looks at your Savior. But the devil doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to be focused in on yourself. Second, um, causing people to obsess over past sins that they have done um, Damage that they've done that can't be undone. So causing us to, the stuff that's been forgiven, but to continue to dwell in it. Um, Third, he accuses us by making Christians think that troubles they've gone through must be punishments. Like, I've experienced this suffering or this trouble. God must be mad at me. And fourth, he makes people think that their inner struggles and feelings they have are things that Christians can't possibly feel. So because of what goes on in my head, because of what I feel... I can't be a Christian because of what I struggle with. These are all ways that Satan accuses us. So do you recognize any of these? Like, are any of these things that play in your head? Um, This is Satan playing you. He knows what strings you've got, and he's vibrating them. He's singing into the top of your piano. Um, One of my favorite shows in college was Arrested Development, uh, which ran for three seasons and was amazing. And they just released the fifth season on Netflix, and I hear it's horrible. Don't watch that one. Watch the first three seasons. Um... In one episode in the first season, uh, the characters, it follows this family that lives in Orange County, and I, I'm not going to explain it. It's great. You need to watch it. But there's this family dynamic, and there's a mother named Lucille who's always playing her children off of each other. And this mother, she's probably in her 60s, or yeah, she's in her 50s or 60s, and she's adult children. And um, there's this one episode where she's playing them off of each other, and she's getting, like she goes and says to the daughter, Lindsay, and says, um, your brother Michael called you a stay-in-bed stay mom. 
And she's really upset because she stays in bed all day. And so she goes to Michael and she's like, I heard you, you, that you called me this. And they have this fight. And then he's like, wait, that doesn't sound like me. And then they both go, oh, that sounds like mom. And so this happens over and over again in this episode where the mom keeps scheming with them and they keep getting tricked and accusing each other and discovering, oh, wait, that's just mom talking to us. And it happens over and over again. Um, in the same way, like we hear these voices and we, we don't, we don't recognize who's the person who's, who's tricking us, right? We don't recognize that, that we're getting duped over and over again, that, that it is the enemy. He's humming or whispering or singing into the top of our piano. Uh, and so the question, do you recognize his voice? Do you know what his accusations and his temptations sound like? And y'all, we have to not be unaware of his schemes. We have to know what he's doing. So finally, how do we fight? Um, well, to fight successfully, we have to know what particular devices he uses on you. And his devices are the things that you say to your heart on the way to doing something wrong. And he's sneaky. Like, he, these are schemes. Like, when, he, when you identify the ways that he accuses and tempts you, he'll stop using those devices and start using others. In my experience, when I identify some of his devices, he actually stops using those, and then these other things spring up in their place. And when you figure out what he's doing, right, he stops singing at that string and he picks a different pitch and sings at a different string. Um, so what does this look like? Well, for me right now, um, there has been this, this like inner monologue of, of shame. Um, in the past few weeks, for the past few weeks, it's been around like 8 or 9 p.m. at night. I've just been overwhelmed with crippling shame. And I, it just hits me and I start wallowing in it and... Um, I wasn't diagnosing it. I was just letting this. I was just letting it, like, just consume me. Um, and shame is this voice that just tells you that you're not good enough. Like you, me, you're not good enough. You're not enough. Um, and once I started, oh, and so with that, I just thought I was horrible. I was doing everything wrong. Like well, I was fine in the morning, but at night I was just a disaster. And so I started investigating it. Like, what is this voice? What is it? What do I feel shame for? And what I discovered was that I felt shame for the fact that I couldn't control things that are out of my control. So, um, for example, like this wasn't one of the things, but it'd be like, um, you know, it rains every, it just rained like every Friday since October. Um, and this shame was telling me like, John, it's rained every Friday since October and you can't do anything about it. So you're not good enough. Like, isn't that ridiculous? Like, that's silly. We're like, of course you can't do anything about it. But the way that the voice spoke to me was that it, it was my own voice, not the voice. My voice. <laughs> the way that I was speaking to myself, the way that I was being lied to, and lie, like the deception was that I was totally, I totally believed it. You know, I totally listened to it and believed it. Um, and Satan has been playing me with that. And now that I know what he's up to, like now that I've diagnosed it and I, and I see it and I've, I've, I've talked about it to Mary Clark and some friends and he's, he's not doing it anymore. Like that voice is gone. Um, and I don't know what's next, but I, you know, something's next. Um, don't know what it is yet. So the question is, do you know what he's using on you? Like what is, the, what is the accusation or the temptation that continues to play on your mind? Do you know what devices he's using on you? I mean, he knows what your strings are. Do you know what your strings are? So how do we fight? How do we fight him? Well, Paul says here to put on the full armor of God. 
And he gives us this list, this representative list of things to put on. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. And he, he contrasts that with the schemes of the devil. Um, and none of these six things are things that we do. We don't, this isn't like a plan or a program. This isn't a skill set that we perfect. It's not a plan you can achieve. They're all gifts. These are things that can be received. And this is because of the armor of God is the gospel. And what Paul's doing by connecting them to a piece of military equipment, he's, he's reinforcing that we are in a battle, that we are in danger, and we're actually wrestling with the devil and his demons. So he gives these six military metaphors, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet, the sword. And he's doing this to give us an imagination for what, what's actually going on in the world. Like this is a picture of reality, and he's helping us have an imagination of this is what is given to us in the gospel. The gospel is the armor. The armor, the full armor of God is the gospel. I mean, think through this with me. What are the two things that Satan does? He tempts and he accuses. Temptation, which is minimizing holiness and, and overblowing God's love so that you think too highly of yourself and you do things you shouldn't do and you think everything's going to be okay and it's a disaster. And accusation is overblowing God's holiness and minimizing God's love so that you have too low of a view of yourself and you hate yourself. So Satan turns you into someone who is either crushed by your own sense of guilt or someone who doesn't have a sense of guilt at all. Now, if you, if you believe that you are ultimately saved by having a good life, if you believe what all the other religions believe, that if you will find God, self-actualize, be saved, be full by doing the right things, if you really believe that through your achievements or your efforts or your, your accomplishments you can save yourself, then either you will sometimes feel like a sinner, oh no, I failed again failed again. Or you will feel loved and accepted. Oh, I did it. I actually did it. But if you believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, died for you as your substitute on the cross, that he lived the perfect life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve so that when you trust in him, all of your guilt is put on him on the cross and absorbed there and all of his righteousness and his perfect record is given to you so that you are loved and accepted by him. And that means that every Christian walks around with those two facts in their mind at the same time. First, I'm a sinner. I am lost in myself, and my sin was so great that nothing less than the Son of God, than the death of the Son of God can save me. My sin is so bad that God had to do that, that Jesus had to do that. And on the other hand, I am so loved and accepted that God sees me in Jesus Christ. Or as I've said it before, Cheer up, you are a far worse sinner than you could ever imagine, but in Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dare hoped. So when you are tempted, that thing that you want to do, Jesus Christ died so that you wouldn't do it. He was ripped limb from limb on the cross for this. How can you have anything to do with it? On the other hand, when you're being accused, when Satan uses this strategy, knowing that you are completely loved and absolutely accepted in Christ demolishes it. The armor of God is the gospel. You put on the gospel, and it completely destroys the strategies of Satan. One final example. What does it mean to put on the gospel? So if you are accused, if, if, if what you hear is the accusation of too guilty, um, I will never be what I should be. I am a complete failure. God cannot love me. Thomas Brooks, the author of um, that book, said this to people under accusation. He said, look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
Brooks writes, you know the wife who said to the bill collector, if you owe anything, go to my husband. So may the believer go to justice or to the devil. If I owe you anything, go to my Christ, who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the fear of those debts which Christ has fully satisfied. The remedy against the accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent for being discouraged by their sin. Believers must repent for being discouraged by their sin. It springs from the refusal to accept the freeness and fullness and everlastingness of God's love. And from the refusal of the power, glories, sufficiency, and efficacy of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. So what is that? That is putting on the full armor of God. And Paul says, now stand. So do you know how to do this? Do you know how to put on this armor, how to handle the things that are being thrown at you? Because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, um, and with the gospel we can stand. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you that you give us your word, and I pray for my friends tonight. Um, Lord, I confess that we just... we. Don't